Well, as Joel said, uh, we are going to be in Psalm 16, so you can go ahead and open your Bibles there if you haven't already. Uh, My name is Neil Clodson. I'm a member here, um, and I'm excited to bring God's Word to you today as we begin the new year. And today my goal is simple. I want to encourage you to seek refuge in the goodness of God who will preserve you and lead you in joy forever. And Psalm 16 is a great text to do that as David exalts in the good God who loves him and preserves him. And so before we read it, um, it must be said, Psalm 16 is a messianic psalm. That means that ultimately it's about Jesus Christ. We see this in Acts a couple times where both Peter and Paul make reference to Psalm 16 as a prophecy of Christ's resurrection. And so as we read this, we're going to both consider how this passage is true of David and of us and all the saints but also we're going to see how Christ ultimately demonstrates and fulfills the truth of Psalm 16. And so we're going to read it, and then we're going to pray and dive into it. So this is Psalm 16. This is the word of the Lord. David writes, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land... They are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. God, we begin 2023 in weakness and trembling. We are surrounded on all sides by suffering, by trial, by persecution. God, we have no good apart from you. We have no hope, no joy, no peace apart from you. Oh Lord, drive us to our knees as we begin this year, God. We have no good apart from you. Be with us today as we take refuge in your goodness. Preserve us and keep us and comfort us, oh Lord. It is to you we cry out. It is in you we trust. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the psalm begins with a plea from David. He says, preserve me, O God. So he cries out for help, and then he writes, for in you I take refuge. So David begins with a plea for rescue, and then he gives his reasons for crying out to God. And many of you find yourselves in the same place, crying out to God, preserve me. Perhaps you're dealing with illness or conflict with family or friends, job loss, suffering of many kinds surround us. And the reality is is that there are many trials in all of our lives, and 
ultimately, we are helpless to preserve ourselves. There is no refuge in ourselves, and so our only hope is to cry out to God as David does. And David's grounds for crying out to God are because of who God is. David's hope for his preservation is in his declaration that God is the one in whom he takes refuge. Consider as well that Psalm 16 is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Hebrews 5 tells us that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. And so Christ himself placed perfect faith in his Holy Father, knowing that he was able to rescue him, even from death. And we must do likewise. To place hope for preservation in anything else, other than the eternal character of God, is the height of idolatry and arrogance. And for some of you, this new year begins with a great amount of fear. How will we survive this trial, this grief, this suffering, this diagnosis, this never-ending illness? And I would exhort you, remember that your only hope for every day is in the mercy and grace of God our Father. His goodness is your refuge. And so David continues in verse 2. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. You are my master, my sovereign, my king. If he is not your Lord, he is, you are in rebellion against him. And then you have this, this just remarkable line. He says, I have no good apart from you. No good. God is the source of all that is good. Right? We know this even from the very beginning. Genesis 1. God saw everything that he made. And behold, it was very good. Right? All good came from him. And yes, our sin is cursed and corrupted the perfect world that God made. And the good things we experience in this life are shadows. Often fleeting. However, every good thing we experience draws us near to God. James writes, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And consider that, that last part as you consider the, God, the good gifts God has given you. All right, consider your spouse. There's certainly a wonderful gift from above, but if you've been married more than five minutes, you know there is plenty of shadow due to change. The same goes for your children, your friends, your job. Every earthly blessing is tainted by sin. There's plenty of variation or shadow due to change. However, the gift of your spouse, your children, your work, your friends, your church, all should point you to the Heavenly Father, who is the unchanging source of all that is good. And there is no good apart from him. He is the infinite, all-sufficient fountain of goodness. And because he is the source of all that is good, that also means we bring nothing to the table. We have nothing to bring except for our sin, our weakness, our need. Paul writes in Romans 11, he says, Who has given a gift to God? that he should be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. God is all sufficient, and because of this, he is sufficient for me. It is because he has no needs that he can meet all of mine and more. 
Because he is the supreme good, I can take refuge in him just as David did. And there is no greater good than this. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. He said, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of him is our proper happiness and is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better, infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here, better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. These are but shadows, but God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. We have no good apart from him. And verse 3 continues, he writes, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Go ahead, turn to your neighbor and, and tell them that. Hello, excellent one. All my delight is in you. And you laugh, but it's true. It is a joy and a privilege to worship together, and our delight ought to be in one another. And it becomes even more beautiful when you look at the next verse as a contrast, right? Look at verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply... Their drink offering of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. And certainly in our day and age, we see the sorrows of those who run after false gods multiplying. We're seeing babies murdered, bodies mutilated, families destroyed, institutions crumbling as the godless seek to glorify themselves. So then how precious is it that we have each other to take delight in? Our need for one another is so great, and our joy in each other ought to reflect that. Right, James tells us that pure religion is in part to keep oneself unstained from the world. So how do we do that? Well, one huge way we do that is by delighting in one another as excellent ones. And it's hard sometimes, right? We're sinners. We sin against each other, and, and sometimes we just annoy each other. Our weaknesses, our quirks, right? We just get on each other's nerves. I would encourage you, though, this is ultimately about Christ. This is a messianic psalm, and so this is true of Christ. Do you realize that Christ delights in his saints? He calls you excellent ones. Do we dare treat with contempt the very people that Christ himself delights in? And if you find yourself struggling with bitterness and anger toward a brother or sister in Christ, take heed, Christ loves and even honors the one you resent. We live in a wicked age, and we need each other desperately. How sweet is our fellowship? You know, one of, the, one of my favorite things about the Christmas season um, is the, the, the Christmas cards that we get. And we're really bad at throwing things away. And so, you know, for some of you, we have three, four, five years of your, your family's cards on our fridge or cabinets or even maybe on a shelf. And so it's just a, such a delight to see your families grow and to reflect on the friendships that God has built with his saints. And some of you I've known for a decade, 
more. You know, I, uh, when we did the, when Trinity did the sing-along a couple weeks ago, I was thinking, Joel has led worship for me for 12 years at this point, between crew, at IU, and now at church. I've known Esteban even longer. And so I've had the privilege, and Joel usually gets the song right. <laughs> All right and so I've had the privilege to watch them grow into godly men, to godly husbands, fathers, ultimately pastors. That is such a privilege and a delight. And many of you have suffered and endured hardship. And you have felt the deep love of this church. And if you haven't, continue to worship with us and you will. We delight in one another and honor one another. And I encourage you to do so more and more because you need it. And so in verse 5, David reiterates what he's already said. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. God is his greatest treasure, his only good. If all the goods of this world were to offer, none would compare with the treasure of God himself. Then he writes, you hold my lot. In other words, God holds him in his hand, and God is sovereign over every aspect of his life. Whatever happens comes from the hand of God. And this isn't some stoic, like, what will be, will be, I'm going to accept my fate. This is exalting in the fact that the good God sovereignly rules his life. Now, why? Why does he delight in this? Well, look at verse 6. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And already, like, that verse is astounding to us when we think about the reality of suffering and sorrow. But remember, this is ultimately about Christ. He is the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was despised and rejected of men. He was often hungry and thirsty, few friends. And those he had abandoned him in his greatest time of need. And his life ultimately led to the cross. And yet, by prophecy here, he speaks. He says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And so if Jesus, this man of great sorrow, was able to rejoice in God, certainly we, who have not been sent to make atonement for sin or suffer on another's behalf, can find that same inward calm and joyful contentment. And so then the question becomes, how? How do we do that? How do we find this happiness and joy and peace in Christ found even in the midst of deepest sorrow? And so our text gives us two answers in verse 8. The first we see is that peace is found in living in the presence of God always. Verse 8 says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Now keep in mind, the psalm begins with David's plea, preserve me. And now here in verse 8, he is confident that God will preserve him. That he will not be shaken. Why? How has David and ultimately Jesus found this peace? By setting the Lord always before me. There is no greater hope and joy than that found in the presence of God. 
We must understand what it means to set the Lord always before us, and we must do so that we too might never be shaken. Now Jesus tells us that the pure in heart will see God. And as God purifies our hearts and as we pursue holiness by faith, we will see God in all things and we will set him always before us. Romans 1 tells us that all of creation reveals God's eternal power and divine nature. And Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And it's a sad reality of our sinful nature that even though God is everywhere, we must learn through great humility and faith to perceive his work anywhere. All of nature's beauty sings his glory, but we're just so blind. Church, I pray that you will remember always this declaration here. I have set the Lord always before me. Refuse to see any second of creation without beholding the creator behind it. Refuse to see anything without seeing God in it. Spurgeon puts it this way. I love this. Wake in the morning and recognize God in your chamber. For his goodness has drawn back the curtain of the night. And taken from your eyelids the seal of sleep. Put on your garments and perceive the divine care which provides you with raiment from the herb of the field and the sheep of the fold. Go to the breakfast room and bless the God whose bounty is again provided for you a table in the wilderness. Go out to business and feel God with you in all the engagements of the day. Perpetually remember that you are dwelling in his house when you are toiling for your bread or engaged in merchandise. At length, after a well-spent day, go back to your family and see the Lord in each one of the members of it. Own his goodness in preserving life and health. Look for his presence at the family altar, making the house to be a very palace wherein king's children dwell. At last fall asleep at night as in the embraces of your God or on your Savior's breast. This is happy living. All of these things, all of these visible things are shadows of the eternal God. All good comes from him and our delight ought to be in the goodness of God, and it will grow as we recognize in all things the glory and goodness of our Lord. So set him always before you. And as we do so, we must live with intensity of purpose. And the Christian walk has no place in it for lip service or half-hearted obedience. I teach, uh, I teach high school English over in Spencer, and uh, one of the first things you learn as a teacher is just the importance of proximity. Right? If, I'm, if I'm up and moving around and I'm close to my students, they're inevitably going to do better work and be more on task and they're going to behave better than if I'm just you know, sitting at a desk or standing in place. Nobody does better work than when their boss is right over their shoulder taking notes. So then consider if you were told tomorrow the Lord himself is going to come down and he's going to watch you, he's going to observe you, he's going to take notes, and he's even going to notice your motives, your heart. And it's true. He will. He's doing it now. And this isn't some like legalistic, pharisaical, you know, stop sinning, you sinners, God is watching. 
It's a call to set the Lord before you in every thought and action. God sees you as you work, as you sit in class, as you love your spouse, as you parent, as you worship. Consider that your master is watching you, your Lord. And he is in your presence always. He's a good and gracious master. And God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, Hebrews 6 tells us. Set the Lord before you and serve him as your gracious king who is always with you. So verse 8 tells us first that the joy and the goodness of God comes by setting the Lord always before us. We also find joy in the goodness of God by trusting in his presence. Look at the second part of the verse. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Right? God is not only near us, he's at our right hand, ready to work on our behalf. We will not be shaken because God is always at hand to take care of us, to fight on our behalf. We'll not be shaken, but consider the unbelieving man. He might put his trust in many things, but that foundation is easily shaken. He might put his trust in money and feel secure, but it will not hold him fast when his investments fail, or his bank account runs dry, or his greed ruins his marriage. The foundation built on his spouse will crumble very quickly because she'll never be able to hold all of his weaknesses and fear. His job will provide no security, nor his children, his hobbies, his empty philosophies. It is a terrible thing to build your house upon the sand, because the storms are going to come. Suffering and sorrow are real, and they will shake you very easily if your house is built on sand, and great will be your house's fault. If you find yourself in this position, if you feel the weight of the world pressing upon you and you have no foundation, look to the Lord. Turn to the Lord and repent. He is at your right hand and in his goodness. He will hold you fast. And God's people shall not be shaken. We will not be shaken by fear. As David himself puts it in Psalm 56, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you and God whose word I praise in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man, what can flesh do to me? We will not be moved by what others think, for God is at our right hand and he is our judge. He is the one who condemns. We will not even be moved by our own failures, our own sins, our own regrets, because we know at our right hand is a God who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For I am sure Paul writes that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will shake us, for Almighty God is at our right hand. And yes, when we trust in God's presence, we will have joy even unto death. We will not be shaken by death itself, which brings us to verse 9 and 10. 
Right, so David has set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Why? For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And ultimately, this is David's hope. And it's our hope that God will keep him body and soul even to death. David has set God always before him and death will not be the end. Death will not be the end because God will not abandon David's soul to Sheol. He will not abandon your soul, believer, to Sheol. Rather, God will be David's Lord, his only good, his portion, his chosen cup, his counsel, dwelling always with him, his only good forever. Death will not cancel out everything he has known and loved about the goodness of God. Rather, as Asaph says in Psalm 73, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so this is the crux of the entire passage, and it's also where we see most truly the fulfillment in Christ. So Acts 2, Pentecost, Peter speaks to the crowd as the Holy Spirit has come down upon the disciples. Paul also quotes this text in Acts 13. On Pentecost, Peter says, Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He certainly saw corruption. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised him up, and of that, we are all witnesses. Christ is the true fulfillment of Psalm 16 and is the fulfillment of the prophecy that gives us our greatest hope and joy in the goodness of God. Why can our hearts be glad? Why can our whole being rejoice? Because Christ is raised from the dead. And if Christ is risen from the dead, Romans 6 tells us, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And this is the foundation of all our hope and all of our joy. God is so mighty and God is so good that he has given us triumph over the grave through Jesus Christ, his son. And there is no greater good than this. One of my favorite passages of scripture is 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes on the resurrection and he, he begins the chapter by saying, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. You understand that, that cry in verse 1, preserve me, even if God were to do that and to the grave and then stop, we would have no hope. We would be pitied most of all. But there in 1 Corinthians, there's that, there's that beautiful word, but. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then he goes on to proclaim, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, 
and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he writes this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, right? will not be shaken. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And I love that. Know that the labor in the Lord is not in vain. Christ is risen from the dead. We will rise with him. So our labor is not in vain. It is, is it not the foundation of all joy that all of our hard work, all of our sorrow, all of our grief is not in vain? Because Christ is risen from the dead. I was thinking of this this last week because, you know, we watched Christmas. We watched It's a Wonderful Life. And and there's this scene at the end where, you know, the main character, he's, he's been shown how wonderful his life is, and he's just running home, and he's rejoicing over everything he once thought was hard and burdensome. And he's full of joy. And... I love that movie, and some of you might too, but, but the scene is really kind of absurd. It's kind of silly. Because his life might be wonderful, but it's, it's hope in this life only. George Bailey, his flesh will see corruption. Without Christ, his soul will be abandoned to Sheol. And here's my point. We have infinitely more joy, more reason for joy, Everything in our life has been transformed by the resurrection of Christ from the dead, and we ought to live like it. David danced like a fool before the Ark of the Covenant, and we have something greater than the Ark. We have the hope of life eternal through Christ our Lord, and we ought to rejoice like that. We have hope beyond the grave. Just just try it sometime. Try to consider it as you go through a day. It's morning tired, I haven't had my coffee yet, I don't want to go to work, I don't want to take care of the kids, and Christ is risen! The boss is in a bad mood, the kids are awful, the house is a wreck, and I will be raised imperishable forever to worship the Lord. I'm tired after work, the kids are fighting, they won't go to sleep, Marriage is hard. Parenting is hard. Sickness is never-ending. Our bodies are wasting away. And we have been rescued from the grave. And we've been drawn near to the very heart of God. Rejoice! We're so scared of being overly emotional or, I don't know, Pentecostal in our worship that we forget, or even worse, we reject the fact that we have every reason to rejoice, even if we look like we're cuckoo for doing it. Are you happy that by the goodness of God in Christ you have resurrection from the face, from the dead? Tell your face. And look, I get it. I know. 
Some of you might say, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what suffering I'm enduring or what suffering I know is ahead. You don't know what the doctor told me. You don't know what my spouse and I fought about. You don't know how my kid is rebelling. And in some cases, I don't. But you understand that it's in that suffering, in that trial, in that hardship, that this is most precious. The resurrection of Christ from the dead ought to be most precious to us when our suffering is the greatest. Because our suffering will end, but our hope in Christ will not. God will not abandon us to Sheol. Our suffering will end, but our worship of God will not. But it's not just that we've been raised from the dead. Yeah, I just, I just, that's not all the resurrection from the dead. Because that's not enough for the goodness of God. And you have this beautiful ending verse. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand. Our pleasures forevermore. And that path of life is not only in this life only, but forever. God has revealed the path to eternal life, and it runs through the cross. And that path leads to him, and in his presence there's fullness of joy. I think of a, think of a feast, you're full, you can't have another bite. You can't have any more goodness, and yet it continues. And to some extent, we already have this fullness of joy. Right? We have joy in the goodness of God. He is always before us, and we know we will be risen in the life to come. But we're going to find this fullness of joy, these pleasures forevermore, ultimately in the life to come. And I want you to think about that, that line from Amazing Grace, right? When we've been there 10,000 years, we have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. And, and, and that's already pretty astounding, right? 10,000 years, and we have 10,000 years more, 100,000 years more, eternity more. But you understand that this verse, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, will be just as true 10,000 years from now, in eternity, as it is today. Right? You might have pleasures in many things, but that well of pleasure runs dry. But the well of God's goodness will never run dry, even through eternity. On day 10,001, you will arise, you will worship the Lord, and you will say, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so as 2023 begins, some of you begin the year separated from the Lord. And I will tell you that there is nothing in this world that will satisfy your soul apart from the repentance and faith in Christ. Look to Him, repent and believe, and you will find at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you reject Christ, be warned. Any hope in this life only is built on sand and will not withstand the storms of this life. Great will be its fall. Build your eternal palace of hope and happiness on the rock of Christ alone. And for those of you who are in Christ, rejoice. Rejoice in the goodness of God. Many of us have weathered great storms of grief 
through sorrow and suffering over the last year, and I will tell you that storms are coming. However, even as we lament the sorrows we endure, we can rejoice in hope, for we know that while our sorrows will last for a season, we can say with David, and we can say with Christ, at your right hand, Lord, our pleasures forevermore. Rejoice in the goodness of God. Let's pray. God, even now, we know at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Even now, we have a taste of the fullness of joy that can be found in you. And yet we know that so much more is to come. We know that our hope is not only in this life, but in the life everlasting. Christ is risen from the dead, and we will be raised as well. We don't deserve this. And yet, in your goodness, you give us so much that our cup runs over that we have fullness of joy. Oh, Lord, this year, may we trust in nothing else but your goodness and love to us. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We rejoice in this and we rejoice in you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.